0: I'd like you to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, but really we're going to be kind of all over the scriptures today, and the passages are listed in your study guide, discussion guide, and so you can follow along and read some more when you get home. I told you last week that I was only getting through about one of five points. Actually, I got through two of five points, but um, we're going to begin Today, with Roman numeral three, after I back up just a tad and remind everybody why we're doing what we're doing. You know the three R's of good teaching, right? Repeat, repeat, repeat. (laughs) Okay. Last week, we were talking about the character of God, and why are we doing that? Because we're coming to some chapters in the book of Romans that are very challenging, these are chapters that have verses like, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. These are verses like, I harden Pharaoh's heart. And verses like, uh, you know, election and, and sovereignty and predestination and and all of those kinds of things. And it's deep water. And as we get into this, we need to have a comprehension, at least an understanding of the character of God in order to cast the understanding of these verses into that framework. There is no one verse of Scripture that fully explains the totality of God. In fact, the whole Bible doesn't explain the totality of God. But in order to gain a, a full understanding of who he is, we need the whole counsel of God. We need the whole scripture to give us insight into his person. And so last week we talked about the transcendent nature of God. And by now you know what that term means, right? He's way up there and we're way down here. And, and he is huge and we are small. And he is infinite and we're finite. and the essential. Bottom line to all of that is we will never fully comprehend God. We will never understand him in all of his enormity and infinity because he is so much bigger than we are. On the other hand, this does not mean that he is inaccessible because God himself has made himself accessible. He has come to us and revealed himself to us In terms that we can understand and while we cannot fathom the whole nature of God we can certainly appreciate and comprehend what he has told us about himself and as I come to this discussion I make some assumptions what in logic or uh, research may be called a a priori assumptions Before we even get started, there are some facts we need to recognize. One of the assumptions I make is that this Bible is the Word of God. That from cover to cover, it is the inerrant, infallible revelation of God in human language, in propositional revelation, in in truths, sentences that I can understand. It's given to me in a way that I can comprehend it, and it is without error. And it's infallible. It will never lead me into a mistake if I follow it, because it's always truthful. And the other thing that the Bible tells me about God is, God cannot lie. You know, some people think that God can do anything. There are things God cannot do. Namely, he can never act inconsistently with his own character. God cannot lie. God cannot sin. God cannot lead us astray. It is impossible for God to do these things. Because he is who he is. And if he did something other than who he was, (laughs) he would not be himself. I, I realize that sounds like a circle, but it brings us right back to the fact that God cannot behave differently than himself, and he cannot lie to us. He tells us, I will always tell you the truth, and I will never lie. In fact, the scripture says it is impossible for God to lie. So when we come to try to to comprehend the character of God, we have to bear in mind that what he tells us in plain spoken, in our case English, originally Hebrew and Greek and a smattering of Aramaic, But in our sense, English, what he tells us is true. And so as we come back to this reference this morning, what does the Bible tell us about the character of God in terms of understanding Romans 9, 10, and 11? I pick up with point three, that the devil is the destroyer, but God is the healer, redeemer. I want to take you to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, just for a moment, because this is a very illuminating and for some surprising passage of scripture. Hebrews 2, 14, and this is what it says. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, it may come as a surprise to you to learn that it is the devil that has the power of death. We have a conception in our mind that death is one of those God things. That, you know... He's the one that takes us to the end of our moment. And then our life expires, and whatever happens, whether we're a child of his or not. And that this is God's doing. But the Bible actually says something quite different. It says the devil has the power of death. And Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 asks some very interesting questions. He says, O oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? For the sting of death is sin. But God gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. So death is not the work of God. It is the work of Satan. And in one sense of the word, the devil kind of uses God's character against him. Now, in the end, and we'll see this as we go through Romans 9, 10, and 11, in the end, God still wins. Because all the devil manages to do is bring a spotlight on the character of God, and that's so amazing. Because God, you know, when it's all said and done, and the devil gets his final due at the last judgment, I don't know if he's going to be the last one, uh, but when he gets his final due at the judgment, He's going to look back over all the evil work he's done in the course of human history for thousands of years and realize that not once did he ever win the upper hand on God. In every situation, God is glorified. We have a hard time getting our hands around that. But but as I started out to say, the devil, in a sense, uses God's character against him. Because Satan knows that there are certain things God can't do. And one of the things God cannot do is coexist harmoniously with sin. In fact, God abhors sin. And he dwells in unapproachable light. And there is no sin in him. And the devil knew in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve were presented with the option of following God and loving him freely from their heart, or going away from God, Satan knew that if he could bring them to turn against God, it would cause their death. Because here's the other truth, the axiom of eternity. God is life. He is the only life there is. There is no life apart from God. And God said to Adam and Eve, In the day that you eat of it, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And we look back and say, well, they didn't drop over dead. They were still talking after they sinned, and and they were expelled from the garden, and what's up with that? But they died. Make no mistake. The Holy Spirit left their lives. Their human spirit withered up. And in that moment of their sin, they were separated from God. And that is death. Only the grace of God physically sustained them long enough to start the human race and get this whole thing going but they were dead the moment they ate the fruit of the tree separated from god and it was only the temporary covering of sacrifice that allowed them to have any relationship with god at all until the cross i can't go into all of that theology this morning we'll just be here forever But the day that they ate of it, they died because of separation from God. And eventually, their bodies withered away and ceased to function because they were spiritually dead and they had no life in themselves. And eventually, their bodies died. And so, death is in the world because of sin. And the devil is the one who propagates sin in its essence. He is the one that drives the mechanism of death. Because that is his goal. To destroy and kill and and deprive and ruin and rob life. That's his purpose, not God's. And so we need to come to that clear understanding. Now, how, how is it that we can say, then my times are in his hands. Well, David says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you know my days, when as yet there was not one of them. How is that? And is the moment of my death in the providence and sovereignty of God? Yes, it is. But understand this. Death reigns because of sin. I'm alive today because of grace. It is not that God appoints the date of my death it's that he numbers the days of my life and he extends his grace to me to live in the opportunity that i might come to know jesus christ and live forever and god is gracious to me and in his all-knowing omniscience he knows the day of my death the very moment the very breath and that too is in his eternal wisdom and counsel. But make no mistake, it is the devil who drives death. It is God who brings life. Which leads me to the second point under number three. God is the author of life. John, in his gospel, as he begins it, he starts out this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. Now, that verb was, in him was life. We are not very careful in our English to distinguish these various tenses and their meanings. But when we use the word was, it is largely indistinct in terms of the time frame. When the Greeks used the word, the verb that they used here, they had a way of drawing attention to the ongoing flow instead of just a reference in time. The emphasis in verse 4 is on the flow. In him was... Always, was, always, is, forever is life. And when he made the world, in him was life. And he shared it with his creation. That's important for us to realize, because when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we're born again, and we say, I have now received eternal life. We, we think of it as beginning. But it's not that that's when eternal life begins. Have you ever been to the headwaters of a river or a stream? How many of you have been to the boundary waters up in northern Minnesota, southern Canada? Okay, that's the headwaters of the Mississippi and eventually forms the Mississippi River and it runs right through the continent all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And if you're at the boundary waters, you're hard pressed to say where they start and where they end. But if you approach the Mississippi River anywhere along its stream, whether you're facing east or west, let's say we're facing west since we live to the east of it, and we go there, <laughs> the water's always coming from here and it's always going to there. It's always doing that. It's a river. It has a beginning that we can't see And it has an end that we can't see, and we're observing this segment that's in front of us. And when we are born again into Jesus Christ, it's not that we get something that we didn't have. It's that we go somewhere we weren't before. We go into the river of life. We come into the life of God, into that eternal stream of his life. And we are now alive in Jesus Christ in the flow of his life. To have the Son is to have life. He that has the Son has life. In him is life. It's not a thing, it's a person. And that person is God. And to have life is to come into God. To be reconciled. To be brought back again into relationship. So, death is separation from God, and life is reconciliation to God, to be in him once again. Jesus says in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life, and have it in all of its fullness. It's not his desire to deprive us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus reveals his purpose in Luke, where he says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. A little ahead of myself there. But in Acts, in him we live and move and have our being. You need to understand this about God's character. God is all about life. The devil is all about death. God is all about eternity. The devil is all about rebellion and separating from God. God is all about being forever in his presence and in his family. The devil is all about taking you away from that, which is good and life and light in Jesus Christ. And and that's something about the nature of God that we need to understand. God is life. The devil is the one who has the power of death. Next, we need to realize that God loves us and does not will that any should perish. Let me go back to my a priori declaration. It is impossible for God to lie. Now, God is going to make some statements about his character in his word. And when he makes those statements, he is telling us the truth about who he is and about his heart. We must believe the revelation of his character, because he cannot lie to us. And the first thing that he tells us that I want to call our attention is that God desires all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Now... Some people have sought to make universalism out of this verse. They've sought to make it that every person is going to be saved. That's not what it says. What it says is God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And in order to get that, I need to explain two Greek words to you. Because there are two words in the New Testament that are translated wills. One of those is the verb uh, thelo. Um, And the other one is the verb, bulamai. Now the first one means, I desire something to happen. The second one means, when God says it, it's a done deal. I will this to be. He spoke and the world was created. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God wills those things. But God also has desires. We're going to be celebrating Stephen's birthday today. He had it on Tuesday, but this is our opportunity to have a birthday lunch. And we're going to grill some steaks and uh, feed him lunch. And I wish it were warm and sunny. And I hope it doesn't rain. And I told Jonathan that if I wasn't feeling well, that he was going to have to do the grilling. And um, I don't think I'm going to be feeling well. (laughs) <laughs> it's cold and rainy out there, and even if I'm totally healed by the end of this service, I'm not grilling out there today. There's, he's back there listening to me, so can't can't weasel out of that one. But um, I desire certain things that may or may not happen, but they express the wishes that I have. That's very trivial and trite, but I have other desires that are very deep. And they may or may not happen. And God has desires. God has passion in his heart. Do you know why we have emotions? Because we're made in the image of God and God has emotions. God, God is not austere, sitting off somewhere on his uh, you know throne, made out of stainless steel, and, and just kind of saying stoically, well, there's the world. Hmm. God has emotions. He has passion. He feels things. We can grieve the Spirit of God because we make Him sad. We can also thrill the Lord, praise the Lord, and bless Him, all you people. We can bless the Lord. We can make Him feel good about us by how we love Him. He has feelings. And in this verse, he reveals his heart. I desire every single person to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's his passion. In 2 Peter 3.9, we're told regarding the second coming of Jesus Christ. God is not slack concerning his promise. As some men count slackness. But he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that anyone should perish. Now, I added the one because the any in, in the language, original language implies it. Not willing that anyone should perish. Again, his heart, his passion, his desire, the heart of God is that no one die apart from Jesus Christ. He is long-suffering to us, not wanting anyone to perish that's his heart Jesus tells us in Luke 19 10 I have come this is my mission to seek and to save that which was lost and everyone that came to him he received have you looked at the ministry of Jesus lately have you looked at the character of God in the face of Jesus he healed the sick he raised the dead the blind received their sight the deaf and mute could hear and speak. He drove out the demons. He rescued those who were outcast from society. He restored the brokenhearted and comforted those who mourned. He gave a mother back her child and sisters back their brother. Because this is God. God in human flesh, in action. And this is who he is. To the woman called in adultery, he said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. To the man lame for many years, he healed him, raised him up, and said, Go and sin no more, that nothing worse will come to you, because destruction, death, decay, brokenness, is is all a consequence of the existence of sin. And Jesus came to be the healer, restorer, redeemer. Look at his life. I've come to seek and save what was lost to me to bring it back. And when you get home today, I want to encourage you to read today or sometime this week Ezekiel chapter 18 and all of chapter 33. These are amazing passages. But here's what it says. God takes no joy when the wicked are punished. God takes no joy when the wicked are punished. Now I take you back to the a priori statement. It is impossible for God to lie. What is he telling us? He's telling us he desires every human being to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. What does he tell us? He is long-suffering and patient, not willing that any should perish. What is he telling us? The Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. What does he say to us? I love this world so much that I gave my only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What is the heart of God that every single human being On the planet, be saved eternally and live eternally with Him in glory. That is His heart's desire. Now, is that going to happen? It is not. It is not. Jesus said, Narrow is the gate, and straight and narrow is the way that leads to eternal life, and there are only a few that will ever find it. But wide is the gate, and broad is the avenue that leads to destruction and most of the human race will go down that path because god is a holy god a just god a righteous god and that is also his character he also says to us i can and will by no means clear the guilty i cannot i will by no means clear the guilty god must judge sin and to be in sin is to be separated from god to be separated from god is to be lost eternally if you die in this physical life separated from god you will be separated for all of eternity there is no second chance there's no get out of jail free card when you breathe your last you're done you're either one or the other place you're either in the presence of god immediately or you're in hell waiting the final judgment in the lake of fire It is appointed to man once to die. After that, there is a judgment. And that judgment is based on one criteria. What did you do with Jesus Christ? That is the only criteria on which it is based. Now, we are not saved or lost because of what we do with Jesus. We are saved or lost because of sin. We are lost. We need to make that very clear in our own understanding. The soul that sins will die. No one goes to hell because they didn't receive Christ. They go to hell because they're sinners without Christ. Jesus is the positive opportunity, the positive influence. He comes to give us life, a way out, redemption. But the reality is that most people will not take that way out. Most people will go the broad path that leads to destruction. How does that fit into the eternal plan of God? How do we understand these things? We must understand and we must not invent a theology that contradicts the clear revelation of the character of God. God longs to save human beings. That's his passion. He comes, the Bible says, looking for us. We know that because the Bible clearly says none of us ever go looking for him. We've been over that in Romans 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who seeks for God, not a single person. We exist in this world and God comes looking for us to rescue us out of darkness. He comes seeking us. He comes to us with his spirit. He comes to us in the message of the gospel. He breathes through that message as it is proclaimed the cool, refreshing wind of the Spirit that awakens our heart and consciousness to the presence of a living God who sent his only Son to die for us. And he comes on that heavenly search. One person has reverently called the Holy Spirit the Hound of Heaven who gets on our trail and seeks us out. And God comes for us. And we must understand and our comprehension of the character of God, that this is his nature. There are other sad realities that are corollaries to that. People who never hear the gospel are going to die in their sin without hope of heaven and the presence of God. That is why we are missionally-minded people. That is why we go to the ends of the earth to tell everyone the good news. Because if you die without hearing it, you die in your sin. And when that message is preached, God is faithful to accompany the preaching of the message, to bring conviction, to bring illumination, to stir the Spirit. Some people think that if we respond affirmatively to the call of God, that we have somehow done something to effect our salvation. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm lying, unconscious, blind and dead on the precipice of eternal death. And God comes to me and opens my eyes and awakens my consciousness and reveals to me his love and shows me the cross and says, Will you let me save you? And if I say yes to his beck and call, I can't take credit for my salvation. That's utterly ridiculous. I'm I'm dead without Him. I have no hope without Him. And He comes to me, and He offers me life. The amazing thing is that people can hear that message and turn away from a loving God. The amazing thing is that. But make no mistake, God's passion in human history is to seek and to save the lost. We have to be careful not to say more than the scripture says and to create a theology that makes God the author of human lives spending eternity in hell. However you cut it, that's not his desire. Will we understand all of that? Will we comprehend election and all of that stuff? Will we get it all together in our finite minds? No, we won't. It's bigger than we are. But God tells us his heart, the God who cannot lie. I love the lost. I've come to save them. You know what's amazing to me? There will come a day in judgment... It's at the end of the book of Revelation. It's all said and done. We've come to the final final moment. And God is on the throne. And all the souls who are not safe in Jesus Christ appear before that throne. We are with God behind the bar of justice. Safely. Clothed in robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. A heavenly host. And the saints of God. And across the bar. Are the lost. And the books will be open on the deeds of their lives. And they will be judged. The question in that day for them will not be what did you do with Jesus? We already know the answer to that. The question will be, what did you do with your life? And the pages will be read, and nothing will be hidden. I don't know about you, but I'm glad to be in Jesus. And then, when the judgment is issued, all of them, death, those who are separated from God, and hell, Will be cast into the lake of fire, which was created for the devil and his angels, not intended for human beings. But that will be the destiny of all men and women without Jesus Christ. They will die in their sins and be separated from God eternally. And the scripture says, Then God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Then God will wipe away every tear. That's going to be a sad moment. But God promises to heal the brokenhearted. And for those of us who grieve the loss of friends and neighbors and loved ones who have just gone to the lake of fire, God will heal our sorrow and dry our tears. And we will go into eternity rejoicing in the presence of God and the company of the redeemed. And we will be together forever. Now, here's an amazing thing. God is omniscient and cannot forget anything. He has an amazing way of wiping away our sorrow. But he himself will know every soul in the lake of fire. And his heart is, I love them. I love them. That's the heart of God. But I can by no means clear the guilty and be who I am. I am a holy God. I am a just God. I am a righteous God. I must judge sin. But I love them. And God will bear that forever. That's amazing to me. And what's really outstanding in the sense of being utterly amazing. I'm, I'm out of superlatives. But, but it just astounds me. That the reason God is waiting, because every year that he waits, more people die without Christ. And what really astounds me is that he is waiting For someone else like you and me to say yes to his invitation. He is waiting for someone else to come. And he says, I will bear the pain of the loss of millions to wait one more day, week, month for you. If you will come home to me. That's exactly the meaning of 1 Peter 3.9. He is long-suffering, waiting for the return of Christ, not willing that any should perish. And friends, when God looked down through human history, I don't know how he does this because he is God and I am not, but when he looked down through human history and saw the choice of Adam and Eve, and knew that fully, and Jesus Christ was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world because he he knew the choice they would make. And he saw that the vast majority of human beings would be lost eternally to the lake of fire. God said, nonetheless, I will make my man, I will make my woman, I will make the human race, and I will give my son for it, that some, from every tongue and tribe and nation, can be with me eternally. And frankly, when it's all said and done, it all brings glory to God. He tells us his heart, I take no joy in their punishment. But his righteousness, his justice, his holiness will be magnified. And for us, his grace and his mercy and his redemption will be magnified. And God will be God. And the devil will stand there with egg all over his face with the shocking awareness that he has done nothing all of his years but magnify the grace and glory and power and majesty and righteousness of God. It's pretty amazing. The other thing that we need to realize as we move into this study is that God is still sovereign on the throne. Certain things happen because of spiritual laws that have been set in motion by a God who is consistent with himself. But he does set the boundary of evil. Just read the story of Job. Satan could do no more in Job's life than God was willing to allow. He can do no more in ours than God is willing to allow. And friends, there is nothing you will ever face in life that God will not go with you through it if you're his child. Frankly, I think he goes with through unbelievers. They just don't know he's there. And he even uses that to tap them on the shoulder and say, I love you, I'm here, even if they ignore it. You will never go anywhere without him. You'll never go through anything without him. Saints have died horrible deaths for Jesus. Look at the martyrs. Look at the history of the martyrs in the church that have given their lives for their faith. And then aside from martyrdom, look at people who have suffered and and, and hurt and gone through pain and trauma and tragedy and crisis and all of those things. But God says, I will never allow you to be tested And tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But every time you're tempted, I personally will make a way of escape that you can endure it. And he tells us when the devil comes in like a flood. And believe me, if God were this moment to withdraw his grace from this planet, we would all perish in an instant. Because the devil, the destroyer who has the power of death, would love to just kill us all. But God says when he comes in like a flood, I will raise up a standard, a wall against him and stop the onslaught. He will not be able to to overrun you. For I am able to make you stand. And if you are a bent reed, broken and bent over, God will strengthen you, and if you are a smoldering flax, that's a little piece of straw that the flame has gone out, and it's just smoking, a little tendril of smoke, but there's a spark. God says, I will not extinguish it. I will sustain you. I will support you. I will strengthen you. The floods will not overwhelm you. The fire will not destroy you. I will be with you. And God sets a boundary on the evil that can come knowing that we are safe in his hands do you ever have those times where your thoughts just go off into real mystery i mean you just kind of get lost and wow how could this be and i had i had some interesting thoughts this week i sat up all night wednesday hurting wondering if i was going to get make it till the morning without going to the hospital which was my secondary goal my primary goal was to live which was why i was willing to go to the hospital but My secondary goal was not to go, so I set up to keep watch, just so I would know in case I, you know, I'm only being partly facetious. And I was musing on some things, and one of the things I was thinking of is, how does God keep track of me when my body isn't any longer? Do you ever think those thoughts, or am I just weird? I mean when you die and your body goes in the ground, you know? Do you ever think about that? I don't go back into some cosmic energy field. I don't become, you know, a yin or yang. You know, I'm Paul Martin. I will be me. I will have my mind such as it is. I will I will have my memories. I will know you. When I see you in glory, I will recognize you. I will know you. I will know Jesus. It will mean something to me to know him because I have personal consciousness. I am self-aware and extra self-aware. I know who you are and I know who I am. And we're not the same. I'm not mixed up. And God manages to keep me forever. Nothing can touch my life because it's in him. In him I live. And move and have my being. Nothing can separate me from his love. Nothing can separate me from his presence. Nothing can cause me to stop being me. Because the one who is alive in Jesus Christ will never die. And I don't even have to have a body for God to keep it together. That's what's most amazing. I am alive in him forever. And he sets the boundaries of evil that can touch my life. And nothing will come to me that he cannot use for my good and that will not bring him glory. Wow. Is that good stuff or what? That is marvelous. So as we approach these chapters, we're never going to get God in a box. We need to recognize his character in the devils. The devil's the destroyer, God's the healer. God is life. God is love. God doesn't want anyone to perish. That's his heart. Don't ever lose sight of that. Don't ever let your theology take you somewhere where you lose sight of that. God doesn't want anyone to perish. And he promises that as the gospel is preached and his Holy Spirit goes forth that he will accompany that with power. And that he will call people to himself. I realized a couple of moments ago as I was preaching that very strongly. That there are people here this morning I don't know. Usually I know everyone in the room. There are people I don't know. And I want you to know this morning that you have heard, although in a different way, you have heard the gospel preached, the good news. God loves you. And he has plainly explained, through his word today to you, how to come to know him. And I believe, as I have preached, that the Holy Spirit is now speaking to your heart. And he's asking you. He has opened your eyes as you've heard the message. He has opened your eyes of understanding. He has brought life to your ears and you have heard the truth. And now there's a stirring in your heart. And God is saying, I want to rescue you. I want to redeem you. I want to save you from your sin and from death. I want you to be with me eternally. I want to be your Lord, your master. I want to be your friend and your guide. I want to be your lifelong eternal companion. And I'm asking you to open your heart and say yes to the call of my spirit. And God is doing that right now. And if you're here this morning, and that's what he's saying to you, oh my friend, today is the day of salvation. This is the time. The scripture says, the one who hardens his heart, having been often Reproved shall suddenly be cut off without remedy. This is the moment that God is speaking to you. Will you step into the river of His life? Will you let Him be your Lord and Master? Will you turn from your own ways and turn to Jesus Christ? Will you trust Him today as your Savior from sin and your keeper for eternity? Will you come to his life? Father, I pray this morning for anyone who's here without a certain knowledge of Jesus Christ. Will you speak to their hearts? Help them to believe, for without your assistance, we remain faithless. Grant your faith. Help them to trust. Help them to turn. In this moment, call them to your heart. Oh God, I pray that no one would leave here today without their feet firmly planted on the narrow path that leads to eternal life. With everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, I just want to lead you in a simple prayer. You don't have to pray this out loud. But if God is touching your heart right now and stirring you, I want to pray a prayer that you can pray along with me in your heart of coming home to God. Something like this, Father, I know that I have sinned. I know that I am on that broad path that leads to destruction. I know I'm separated from you. But today I've realized that you love me, that Jesus Christ died for me, that I might live eternally in your presence. I turn from my sin. I ask you to forgive me. I invite you into my life. I trust you to save me today and forever. And I want to live with you and walk with you all the rest of my days. I come in Jesus' name. Amen.